0: This is Brain Fuzz. The art, music, and culture podcast with Joe Camusa and Matthew White. In episode 7, from an Airbnb in Lexington, Kentucky, Joe and Matthew are joined by Stuart Horodner. They discuss the sharing economy, Judy Lynn, Felix Gonzalez Torres, dinner parties, Philip Gustin, Philip Roth, Sgt. Pepper, celebrity and museum experiences but first what about airbnb versus hotels
1: i'm a hotel guy are you i find it interesting to now be i'm in a relationship with a woman who has an airbnb in her house so i have fluffed more pillows and put out more mints and cleaned up more stuff than i ever thought i would in the Assisting, oh. you the concierge. Oh. Well, no, I'm the I'm the uh, happy-go-lucky boyfriend. But the I've now stayed in more B and Airbnbs because of this relationship. So when we when we've traveled, my tendency would be hotel, which we've also done. But in the spirit of a saving money or B checking out other Airbnbs and seeing how other people do it, mm-hmm. we've done that in. St. Louis, we did it in Houston. Can't remember if we I think we did it in Chicago as well. And so there's something extremely lovely about the borrowed domesticity of it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So you can bring food in, you can cook, you can have a different relationship, maybe you see the city in a different way but I do find it distinctly different, the mindset as the visitor-traveler when you're in a hotel with whatever sense of order and stability that that might provide, or anonymity. Yeah.
2: I just feel more independent in a hotel. And I'm neat and and orderly to begin with, but there's just something about that's neutral neutral stuff, and some Airbnbs are stripped. Uh, The one we're in now is like we just, we're staying at a friend's house. There's yeah. stuff everywhere, a record on the turntable, and it's really uncomfortable for me. Is it really? In a way, you feel like, is there a camera on me? Is this a test? Should I touch something? What if I, you know, it's kind
0: of a- uh... he, he always, he's
1: concerned about the- uh, Surveillance? Surveillance. <sighs> they watch me. Do you, do you, you, see, but you said staying in a friend's house and staying in a friend's house is kind of nice. Yeah. But there is something about, do you feel more capable of, of being demanding when you're at a hotel? This is not right. This is not right. Hey, the TV yeah, doesn't work. I mean, right. That's towels, true. You're, at true.
2: you're right. In this case, it's like, well, the store's around the corner. Uh, the friend comment was, we actually met the, the host uh, normally, you know, it's a key under a mat And it's this total, you have no idea You, you exchanged a, an email or two uh, So this time, I definitely felt It was a little more welcoming And that's possibly owing to Lexington
1: You know, a nice, you know, friendly Georg- Georgia doesn't want to meet the people That she stays, I mean, she, her houses She's in, you know, when, when she's got guests She's there And so they're occupying another part of the house And we're aware of their presence But she has not a lot of interest in the interactivity of gotcha. it, you know? And what's interesting is that she'll often get extremely high marks in the Airbnb feedback loop yeah. of, oh, we love the place, and it was wonderful and perfectly located, and your decor and yeah. hair and the setup was, you know, wonderful. But we've stayed in places where the proprietor, owners were very present. You, like you, Oh, really? You met them. They wanted to come by to see what you needed. In one case, <laughs> in St. Louis, it literally, we either didn't understand it, how close it was, uh-huh. that it was right out of our bedroom into their kitchen. Yeah. And so that sense of, hey, I got to go to the bathroom. You know, do I want to put on a robe and walk out? And clearly, there wasn't any sense of privacy at, at all in this one place. Oh, uh, I couldn't do that. Yeah. I, I Well, we, we kind of... Just grinned and bared it. I always
0: it. I always. Did we grin and bared it,
1: or we grinned and bored it?
0: What is it? You bear it.
2: You... I think I would just say grin and bear it, and let the grammar gr- grammarians. <laughs> let the past tense just fill in for itself. <sighs> Maybe give me a
0: red card on that one. Well, you've already gotten one red card today. Coughing. To
2: oh, that's true.
0: I don't know, Joe. You're pushing it.
2: So funny thing happened to us on this trip. In the sharing economy and riding in an Uber, we've met some amazing, amazing human beings. In Nashville, a lot of musicians with great music collections on board. And uh, another gentleman that has uh, stayed with us on this trip in terms of uh, his vocal quality. Kind of a mashup here between Howlin' Wolf and Red Fox. (laughs) And it's a gift that keeps on giving because I could read the phone book in this voice and it's, and it's humorous. But there's this old <laughs> adage sticking, I can hear my mom saying it whenever I'd, be, I'd make fun of a, you know, my brother or sister that you know if you're making a face, you know, better knock that off. Your face is going to stay that way. I think this is a Kafki Is it kafkian Kafka-esque. I'm on cold medicine as well, but I think now my voice is trending.
0: You know, to hear you speak right now, you wouldn't realize that you took nighttime medicine in the daytime.
2: That's true. We're a little... What what did you call this sojourn this morning?
0: It's been so relaxed that we feel like we're on this this. It's a it's through the south. It's a uh. It's a brain fuzz deep dive. Not a field trip. It's a deep dive.
2: A leisurely stroll through Nashville, through record shops, bookstores,
0: music where'd, stores. Where'd you stay in Nashville? We and stayed in an Airbnb, Airbnb in Nashville. And that was, let's see. We didn't meet the... There was a... No. Just a we voice were just texting the, with her. Over the phone? Yeah,
2: there was a voice on the a phone. A lockbox. It was very anonymous, very nice. The house was definitely a full-time Airbnb. Nothing it, in the cabinets. Nothing. Well appointed, comfortable. All right, So I
1: have a question. Yeah. This relaxed sojourn, would it felt would it have felt as relaxed <clears throat> if you were at hotels? Is the Airbnb contributing to some sense of? Comfort. Informality. Informality?
0: Yeah, I, I think so. And that's that's one thing I like about the uh, Airbnb sharing economy. Well, because plus
2: you're, you're under one roof. <coughs> excuse me. i realize in a hotel you're still under the same roof, but we'd have separate rooms, probably on separate floors. Yeah. So it's like, hey, I'll see you in the morning. Yeah. Here, you're sharing a house.
0: You're yeah, wall apart. And you call down, it's like, dude, I'm hungover, man. I'm, I'll be down in 20 minutes. And then you're eating powdered eggs and the. And tang. Yeah. Tang if you're lucky, if you can get it. It's coming back around. It could,
1: could totally come back around. Well, you need to bring Tang with you now, Joe. I, You've got Tang a co- and a neti pot, a neti pot, your coffee pot.
2: I did bring the coffee pot, but, but you're making you espresso right now.
1: And I so, could. what's going in? So, Joe, Joe's writing in the sketchbook right now. So, what sketchbook, notebook, journal? Do you have them separated? By the way, are they? Is one a sketchbook? A... This
2: year, I have I have four different notebooks, which. One is a one hundred percent. I hate the term sketchbook, but it's uh, yes for some kind of art making. Uh, Picture collecting. playground. Yes, this book right here <laughs> like is that. more of a text. If there are talks I go to, planning lists, maybe some some doodles here and there, ideas. But uh, then there, and then there is one with graph paper that's totally just collage based. Very minimal, and then an old ledger that I'm just starting to work in a, uh, what's it called, an SE ledger? I looked it up, and of course I've already forgot what the SE stands for. I think it's short entry, multicolored, old. I'm obsessed with graph papers, so that one I'm using more in terms of any kind of word-based art projects, just because I love paper.
0: It's an old ledger you found at a flea market, something like that, a garage sale.
2: Uh, Yeah, it's a found book that with like the faux leather. Yeah. But it's kind of a pain because if you're traveling, and suddenly I have this stack of notebooks. But there's no way to put it all in one in a spawn. These are what, like the moleskin five by nine. No size. way,
1: because of it's, your retrieval desires? Yeah,
2: it's easier to. And then I'm thinking art-wise, and it's dangerous to have a sketchbook that starts getting precious, though, because mm. then you're not going to risk. Sometimes I just mm. have to start literally writing random and drawing and. Using different, because otherwise it starts to look, you know, like oh, well, I want this nice and precious, and it's already bound. I don't have to worry about that. So I'm constantly having to juggle that. But yeah, four, four or five notebooks is a kind of a. We're coming lot. to the end here.
1: We are. We're almost there. So my question: different notebooks, different pens?
2: Yeah. There's a different. Uh, the uh, the Microns are the 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 workhorse of the uh, the other sketchbooks. And then if I'm writing these days, I'm using the uh, the V7 Pilot. Oh, that's a hell of a pen. It is, but it smudges. You got to let it dry. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and smudges are not my friend. So, um, yeah, different pens. That's why, hence, I need the man bag. There's a ruler in there. You could, oh, that's Some right. Stencils. Yep. yep. Reading material. Yep. A lot of reading material. Like I've got the instant, the portable studio, because I'm not as quite down as Felix Gonzalez Torres with the, his studio is
0: the kitchen table or the laptop. Who came up last night over dinner?
1: Mm-hmm. You're going to love this. Can you, right. t- can you tell the story, Stuart? I can give you a shorthand version of it. Set the table. Well, we were talking about teaching children, engaging children with art. And Georgia was speaking about, and she's a phenomenal teacher, usually doing things, sharing uh, information, images, stories about artists with young, young students, and... Uh, that would rarely be brought up in a classroom that I've ever seen or a teacher that I've ever seen, trying to explain complicated art mm-hmm. activities and processes and points of view with kids in a, in a way that they can understand. And so we were talking with Judy Lynn and Georgia Henkel and Matthew and myself about when we showed a Felix Gonzalez-Torres poster stack at the museum and I was giving a tour to these students, and we were speaking about that moment where you realize that the stack is the same poster on top of, you know, reproduced certain size, and that the visitor is allowed to take one poster and take it away. And the history of Felix Gonzalez Torres' work as a gift. And how, how rare in the museum gallery context, you're not only, not all, not only supposed to never touch anything, but the idea that the artist has made his work as a kind of endless gift, which is always replenished during the run of the exhibition, and the viewer, and obviously when you're speaking about little kids, the idea that they can take a thing home, mm-hmm. that moment where it goes from you can't touch it to I'm rolling the poster up and giving yeah. it to someone was pretty yeah. magical. And we were just speaking about art histories of encounters with this artist.
2: But do you think if you're showing a kid, yeah, it's OK to take or touch this, are you setting a bad precedent?
1: No, the beautiful part of explaining Gonzalez Torres is that if you do it right, you can explain why touching things that are not meant to be touched is good. And in this moment, you're liberated to do so. Now, what's interesting about this is that I haven't gotten to the part of the story that Matthew's most excited about. Oh,
2: good. I need this.
1: Yeah. Right? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. This was a perfectly fine conversation we were having. <clears throat> Last night about mm-hmm. Gonzalez Torres and speaking of the share economy, I mean yeah. the, the notion of coming back around yes. we can make Airbnbs yes. have a connection to Felix Torres. But that was not what we were speaking about. We were all talking about the joy of this work in Gonzalez Torres. And then Judy Lynn said, Well, you know, Felix was a student of mine at Pratt Institute. Oh what? Wow. Yeah. Crazy. And started to tell some wonderful <laughs> stories about Felix and his Even then, as a young man, his unique take on art making and uh, introducing him to other artists and wanting to bring... He was just evidently quite a special dude. And I've had, since that conversation, some real uh, fun thinking about Judy Lynn's photographs and what she seems to care about and document, which... If Judy didn't take pictures of some of these things, these things would not be noticed, you know? Yes. Um, and Felix seems to have been able to figure out a way to remind us of various things that might easily be You could tell lost. It, it was remarkable how
0: the impression that he made on her at that age,
1: he, and that really came across in the way she was telling the story. Yeah, and Georgia tells me a lot about little kids in her orbit, when they'll say something or do something that seems so beyond their years or just feels Mm -hmm. like it's a pure, beautiful, creative moment when you watch some young person go down a path and just see where they go in a way. And the challenge, I think, in both cases, as the educator or the teacher or the artist, is to create some space where possibilities feel open and rich and deep you know and not necessarily shut them down
2: i think that is an amazing gift which you clearly have and i think we were all recounting judy's talk on friday that she gave and i thought that was filled with wisdom but it was in what she maybe didn't say or the room that she left for the uh participant or the audience member to fill in fill in the gaps there was uh she mentioned particularly like a book by Stieglitz and how important that was in her development as an artist, more so than than her, her schooling. And how, as she went through each photograph and trying to figure out how he did, how he made that work, but she referred to it as her grammar. And that's something that I will riff on for probably years. And I just, spending a little time with her and just seeing like, wow, there's so many stories she could have told us that I would have probably, like I'm trying to, Figure out how to keep my mouth shut and listen more, and say, say more with less as well. But I, I really respect that in people, and that's a sign to me of a great teacher. And obviously, hearing that, you know, she's I talking. think it's,
1: I, I think it's really interesting to think about how, and it's not only in the realm of teaching, maybe, but just what when you watch somebody give a lecture, you know that they're having to imagine. Oh, what do I think about? What am I going to tell them? What am I going to show? What have I learned? Like, what can I, sh- you know, basically in this notion of the, the generosity of that, yeah. uh, the sharing of it. I think a really interesting question for not only artists and people giving a lecture, but just friends <laughs> yeah. is this notion of what, have I, what do I care about? Mm -hmm. what have I learned Mm -hmm. what could I tell you about what I care about and what I've learned that might open up some sense of a use value conversation you reveal yourself and those 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 conversations those stories those um insights that and you know as you get older maybe hopefully you get a little more clear about what those things are what their value is um and so there is something about dinners and meals and, and conversations or lectures you heard or something you wrote in your journal. The arts education and what you do
0: at the, um, at the museum, we talked a little bit about that last night, how you have these experiences taking children through the museum and certain ex- exhibitions, and the insights that they yield are unlike
1: what you get from adults. Kids seem very open to share what they think about something without worrying about being wrong. And so it's really very fun to be with them because by the time they're in middle school, they're already having all of those concerns and doubts and not wanting to feel exposed, not wanting to risk being wrong. And you ask a little kid, just what do you think you're looking at? Or tell me about what this sculpture painting photograph makes you think about or feel or what does it connect to in your world that you know about and they're just bold and they get it you know
2: those imaginations are just yeah you
1: know they're not already boxing all the experiences into this category or that category and I, i you know as somebody now who's lived their life around museums and loves going to museums to be working at one or trying to figure out how it can be a place where people can come and feel very uh, transformed, you know. It is really exciting to watch or believe that the museum is a place where people, even when they're not expecting it to happen, even when they think that they like this thing, it's often that thing that moves them. Uh, it, you know as a, it's just you creating spaces for transformative encounters it doesn't happen all the time but when you've had one of those experiences with a thing that's just sitting there that was made you know 200 years ago or a couple of months ago or mm-hmm. thousands of years ago whatever you know anything about it you don't know anything about it you just turn left and you see something that kind of makes your head tingle, you know, uh, or gives you some feeling that you didn't know you were going to have. That just feels like a, a very special thing uh, to be able to provide that platform for people to encounter things. And we were talking about the digital, you know, yesterday. And so it feels even more important for me than I ever believed in the age of the immediate sharing and time, space, speed of information and data, that a picture of an artwork is not the artwork. The conversation that can be had with a person in space looking at a thing is not looking at it in a magazine. All those intangible parts of it. Right.
2: What do you think about, you know, wall text, headphones, like the whole apparatus that some exhibitions employ, uh, to educate, you know, inform.
1: I think it's a it's an interesting dance. I, um, a believer in the educational mission of an institution telling you about what you're looking at. I don't think you're meant to be left entirely to your own devices. Um, although now our devices are able to very quickly tell us about something. <laughs> that phrase has never seemed, to be, never seemed to be slipping into new territory. But, but that uh, I think wall labels are interesting. I'm excited about trying to maybe rethink how wall labels can function. What's the tone of voice? Who gets to be speaking? There's often in wall labels uh, or didactic information an institutional voice which is very sober and clearly trying to tell you something that might help your experience. But I think there's a lot of latitude in how labels and guides and tours can happen. And so I'm excited to have a place where I can try to think about some of that. I often tell people when I'm giving a tour and I love doing it, that I am robbing them of an experience even while providing them a different experience. You know, like I'm... Happy enough to think that a tour that I give is informative and engaging, and I can ask them things and maybe show them how to appreciate what we're looking at. But I also know that when they start listening to me, they're stop. They stop looking right. in the way that they would if my okay. information wasn't in the mix. Yep. And so it's a it's a little dance, you know.
2: I think everybody has a different way of of seeing an exhibition. Um... I'm just curious for each of you like when you what's the ideal scenario if you're seeing let's let's say a, a, an institutional a big institution a MoMA show how do you how do you take it in are you by yourself are you with a group
0: is there a set way if you had your druthers if I had my druthers I go in get the context absorb that Then walk through, then go back through usually or go back to the individual pieces that, and then just digest it. That's the way I tend to do it. But I I really, I've seen a lot, I've seen shows that could have been a lot better given more context. And I I don't care what what your education level is. Institutions get in this space where they have blinders on and they th- almost take for granted that, you know, some people don't, some people are doing other things in their lives and they can't, they, they don't have the background that you have and they go into this and they walk out thinking either it's irrelevant. Uh, I don't know how this connects. I don't know why this is important. And that's, that's the real challenge, but to approach it from the outside it's difficult to do that and then shape the shape the show, the exhibition that way.
1: See, I almost have to raise a different question, which is how often are we going to see things that we don't know anything about? So for example, let's just say you're going to MoMA. I mean, there's a lot of ways to answer this or at least even counter question it. If you're going to see this MoMA show that you just created, why, do you already know why you're, already, you're going to see it? You. What do you know about it? How much do you want to know in advance of going to it? It's sort of like movies. I was saying to yeah. George, I was saying to Georgia the other day that I'm enjoying, after many years of following certain actors and directors and liking to read and know a lot about the thing before I go see it, that with films I'm finding much more pleasure in going to see things that I don't know a lot about in advance that I haven't read reviews of in advance. Now, obviously, I'm going to see things that I kind of know I'm interested in seeing, but by the time I'm going to a museum to see an exhibition, I pretty much know that I'm going for reasons that exist before I walk in. What's interesting for me is that if I go to a museum, I want to answer your question, I like going by myself. Ideal viewing, to, ideal viewing experience by myself in a not crowded, Museum, yes, yes. where I can read, and I'm looking differently now as a museum sure. person right person yeah. because I, I I'm just looking at things I never looked at exactly. Donor walls and where how many benches and yeah, you know what's the state of the lighting and where is a, you know where is the gift store or where are the guards or is there a wall label and how is it written and all of that, but. I like getting an overall impression of how they're shaping the information. So if there's some panel of text that I'm supposed to read, how is it written? Is it written in a way that I can understand? Is it meant for a general audience? Is it using, you know, the nine-dollar words? Does it imagine that I'm going to look up the nine-dollar words if I don't know what they are? You know? And so, I find that really fascinating. To engage a museum exhibition, to walk in, get an overall impression, go where my body takes me, be in, be lured by the piece over in the corner and maybe miss three other pieces on the way to it. Right. And yeah. come back and spend the appropriate amount of time yeah. um, doing that. But I also find that as much as I love looking at artwork by myself, there is some I'm trying to figure out that. How to use that discursive word? We mentioned the other day. that 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 a conversation with a, that a conversation with a friend, uh-huh. you know, about what you're looking at, yeah. or comparing notes yeah. on an exhibition when you're with somebody whose opinion about things you you like and yeah. respect is really there's nothing like that, right? Right. Too right.
0: I think the problem with walking around with some sort of guide uh, with the headset or the handset um, the problem the problem there is that there just isn 't the feedback, the shared insights, and shared perspectives and as a as someone walking through a museum, you just feel like you 're being preached at
1: This is what it means, and there really is no other interpretation is is often the Or even just the information. Let's just say that they're leaving out interpretation, but they're giving you data. Yeah. Rembrandt was 27 when he made this painting. Or, you know, Motherwell was thinking about this when he made the, you know, Elegy to the Spanish Republic paintings. Okay, I mean, that's, that's really helpful. But to have the information come... And then hear a little beep that tells you it's time to now move on to the next thing where we will tell you some interesting information about that thing, too. It's the the orchestration of the information. It's the timetable. It's that sense that you are really being restrained in your experience. You're getting something in exchange for that restraint. You're getting information that Mm -hmm. would be hard to give you in any other way. But you're also being limited in your freedom to move with your own instinct. Right. And if you want to spend more time looking at this thing rather than that thing, you start to throw the order of the guide or the tour off. I love that idea of being alone together. There's something about... There you go. ...looking and then having other people with you that are looking parallel to you. And if you, it's just that collective joy. And even if you don't know anybody who's in the museum with you, there's something very uh, validating about the fact that there are many other people who, like you, are interested in being in this place, having this experience. I think that's now that I live in a very sports centric place. There's something, even though I might not want to participate as much in that side of. You know crowd culture I can't quite deny for the people who are big sports enthusiasts that they have that same language and mm-hmm. and, yeah, and, absolutely. and and experience well, and there's, thrill yeah,
2: there's a community right however brief that does come together
1: we're here together caring about the team for these you know whatever time frame the game runs and uh, it's we, fun to be in the space with all the people that care about late de Kooning, let's say. Correct. You know? Correct. And know that there are others beyond the museum walls who also care about that. And uh, we, think we're,
0: uh, we think we're alone together in this Airbnb, but the other night, there was a crash of books.
2: We subsequently learned they were books.
0: We subsequently, we yeah, it was a crash that I thought I perhaps was responsible for. This is three o'clock in the morning, or so. And it ended up being Reader's Digest condensed, a stack of Reader's Digest condensed. They
2: are condensed, but they packed a wallop.
0: They didn't. T- what's interesting is they didn't touch the essential Erasmus over there. Any, of, any of the, <laughs> any of those yeah, the heavy toes. <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh, they're volatile. All right, you're having a dinner party. Artists, authors, who would you invite, dead or alive? Well, you're not inviting dead people, but they can be. We'll just suspend that.
1: I I, I always want uh, Allen Ginsberg in the mix. That's a, Those those kinds of questions are interesting. I, I always read other people's answers to those questions and think, right, Mark Twain, yeah. That would be good. <laughs> you know? Um, uh, I, I, you know, Brando, be fun in a room, dinner party. Uh, early Brando or late Brando? Any Brando? Any Brando? Any Brando? Oh, wow. Any Brando? Maybe even late Brando, just because he's got all that early Brando ahead of you know uh-huh. behind him. Uh, yeah,
2: that, I mean that's a really hard question. It's a great question. Escape, but if I had to turn around and answer it, I'm I like, want to do some research. That's a hard one, but unlike you, I find that fascinating.
1: Writers, uh, you know, as many artists as I love, I feel like, (laughs) I I mean, look, I know some great artists, and I've loved some great artists, and, um, you know, I feel like writers are still a mystery to me in a way that artists are not. Musicians, maybe even more so, you know? That is, a, that is a capacity of making something that I just don't, sh- I, I can't sing, I can't play an instrument. Um, uh, so, you know, to think about a, a, you know, a George Harrison or a, you know. A, so what record is on in the background? You know what I listened to the other day for the first time in years? Sergeant Peppers. Nice. There you go. I don't know that that would be the music behind yeah. me for a dinner party, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I... I, uh, I was I was quite... happy to kind of give myself over to attentive listening to that record while I was just in my living room. What's your favorite part of that room. record? Uh, you know, I, my favorite part, I think, really is the beginning... is Sgt. Is Pepper, is the song, and is the almost meta moment of... You know, the Billy Shears, you know, yeah, the, right. the crowd swell of Billy Shears, the record within the record. Right. You know, the setup of that whole.
0: Lennon later criticized it, saying that he, they called it a concept record, but it really the concept was over after the first two songs. Correct. And, and he.
2: I think they all agreed on that. It just was getting it just got out of hand.
1: But I just really appreciate it and what's so you know beautiful about that bringing it back from the music and the art dialogue is you know the entire construction of that image that is the yes. Sgt Pepper yep. album cover yep. and oh sure you know all of all of that um, who's on your who's in your I know you've been in, no, you've been I mean, intoning Philip Gustin at every turn yeah guston and
2: uh, but I just noticed something even yesterday you know spending some time with an artist and realizing that it's a fraught space, but yeah. to sit with someone like, you know, Philip Roth, and maybe you are talking about gardening, you know, tomatoes and price of okra, that would be fine, versus digging into the work. I mean, almost unless there's a contract, so to speak, of like, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about this, right. yeah. is that okay, you know? like
1: See, that's the thing that brings me back to that question about how do you share what you know. Because it's interesting you say Philip Roth. I, I, I've read a decent amount of Philip Roth and when I'm and in any number of books. There's always a moment or many, many moments where you read a passage and what you realize is that he has so closely observed human behavior or the feeling of a certain time or place or it's Newark in the 50s or some. And you think, you know, these four sentences have just told me a part of a story that he wants to relay, but he's also telling me what he's observed about like an old person or a family or a dynamic that's so well looked at that in order for him to put the words in the right order for me to immediately read what I've read and know, Oh yeah, I know that moment in the morning with your family. I know that. I know what that feels like. Or I know that mm-hmm. feeling when the leaves just start to turn yep. or whatever yep. it is that right. that great writers do. Or and I, you know, I'm a huge poetry fan, so I'm always amazed at what a very short word count or the sequence of a series mm-hmm. of words how unbelievably transporting that can be. But it's all about even before they put it to paper what they've taken in and processed in their life you know whether it's a breakup song or a hopeful you know morning new season poem the observational depth yeah. of what artists know and see even before they try to figure out in what form are they going to share it with somebody else it's just a very humbling, amazing. I saw Philip Roth speaking of. I'll try to pull this all back together in one moment here. Which what is, Philip I Roth, saw has Philip an Roth <laughs> at an opening? <laughs> I, I, I say at the Philip Roth um, Happy uh, beer but but I saw Philip Roth at the opening of a show at MoMA, maybe ten or fifteen years ago. No, it was a screening, a film screening, at, at MoMA. And he was there, 10 feet away from me. And I just couldn't go say hello. I felt like there was nothing that I was going to say in that moment. I saw him. That was joyful enough. I, he was standing by himself. I could have easily gone over and said the typical thing of just, hey, I'm a, it's a pleasure to see you here. I'm a big fan. Your work meant a lot to me. I'm sure he would like hearing that. I'm sure he's heard that for decades. But something about... Him in particular At that moment felt like You know, just leave the guy alone
0: (laughs) We've talked about this before You run into somebody in an elevator What do you do? You do nothing
1: Mostly, you know I've run into a lot of people in New York And and LA and other places In the arts or in culture And and I I honestly do like saying to them Hey, it's really It's nice to see you And I, I really, your work's meant a lot to me And they're always nice. Yes. And it always does feel good. And I never ask for an autograph. Right. There's never any of that business. But it's just, it was very funny. Philip Roth almost had a a kind of protective shield that for me just made it impossible to want to.
0: And you've had, I mean, I remember a post. I remember a picture that you posted once of you with Sharon Stone and Robert Rauschenberg. Yeah,
1: that was an opening of show I did. <laughs> <laughs> and that was pretty fun. <laughs> but fun because it was, you know, what was really fun about it, and it was in San Francisco, was it was a show really paying tribute to Rauschenberg's influence on younger artists. And so Raschenberg was there at the opening, and he was quite enamored with the idea of the show. And I think he liked it. And he liked certainly meeting the artists who claimed to have been in his debt, you know. And Sharon Stone had a kind of curious sponsorship role in this exhibition at my friend's gallery. And at the best moments, it was just that these are all people who are happy to be in a room together celebrating Rauschenberg. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And Sharon seemed to have been very, you know, eager to be one of those people. And it wasn't about, you know, Sharon. It was about, I'm a... Well, I mean it was a little bit about Sharon because when, when, when you're around <laughs> yeah that personality, it has an orbit as well, but um yeah it's uh, I don't know it's fun being around generous creative people, and it's also just fun when they young or old don't care about too much and can just be themselves and be nice,
0: say interesting things. So going back to our dinner party, music's on. You're having the uh, dinner party at somebody's Airbnb. Whose is it? Adele. Tom Waits.
1: <laughs> Adele. Um, <laughs> That's good. Tom Waits. Tom Waits would be very. Tom Waits, I think, would be very high on most of my lists for some type Everything. of in- some type of impact, <laughs> some type of, <laughs> some type of conversation.